Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another edition of Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on the Nerdcast, has Donald Trump set the standard rather than the exception for presidential candidate wealth? We're going to bring you a little billionaire roundup starring two other potential 2020 candidates. Plus, the shutdown is over. After 35 long days, the president caved late last week and a deal was reached that would keep the government open for three weeks. But that's without funding for a border wall. So if you have any pressing business with government agencies, uh, we definitely know that they're going to be open for the next two weeks. Uh, And we're going to talk to one of Politico's White House reporters and a congressional reporter about exactly what the situation is and whether we are or are not heading for potentially another shutdown at the end of all this. Uh, As always, before we jump in, we are taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday. Uh, Today, that's Thursday, January the 31st. So it's all up to date as of then. All right, let's get started. I want to welcome the guests for our first segment. We have in the studio Chris Catalago, national political reporter for Politico. Hello, Chris. Hey, great to be back. And on Skype, we have the author of Politico's Massachusetts Playbook, Stephanie Murray. Hi, Stephanie. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. So time for our first data point. Two. Trump might not be the only billionaire running for president in 2020. In fact, there are two other ultra-rich contenders who are considering a campaign. We've got uh, Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York, who's uh, interested in running, the longtime independent who's interested in running as a Democrat this time around, and then a longtime Democrat who's interested in running as an independent, Howard Schultz, the uh, extremely wealthy former CEO of Starbucks. Um, We're going to talk about him in a second, but Stephanie, let's start with Bloomberg. And you were just uh, following him uh, on a trip he took to New Hampshire this week, which uh, New Hampshire being what it is, the first primary state, certainly seems like it could be the beginning steps of a presidential campaign. Tell us about what happened, what what Bloomberg talked about, and how, how it's all setting up for him. Well, it certainly felt like a very kind of candidate presidential campaign tour. So he started out the day with the speech at um, St. Anselm College in Manchester to a pretty crowded room. And he took some shots at the president there. And then he moved on to a tour of a really old pin manufacturing factory in Nashua. Um, And then he headed up a little further north to Dover, where he did a walking tour of some of the downtown businesses with uh, Senator Gene Shaheen's husband, Billy Shaheen. And So, you know, courting all of these people and talking to folks and factory workers definitely felt like um, what a candidate would be doing if they're in New Hampshire. What you're you're saying is this is is not normal activity for someone who's just enjoying enjoying a a random winter week in in January by by touring factories and and glad handing people on the streets of New Hampshire. That would be correct. So what what where where does it go from here? Like what's what's the pitch he's making? So he is definitely kind of taking a little bit more of a moderate stance than the other folks that we've seen kind of announce and jump into the race, like Senator Elizabeth Warren, Senator Kamala Harris. 
Um, he was asked about uh, Medicare for all, and he said that it was impractical. Uh, he said that Warren's wealth tax proposal was probably unconstitutional. And on the topic of tuition-free college, uh, he said, you know, that would be nice, but we've got to pay the professors, so that wouldn't make sense. Uh, so he's definitely kind of bucking this really far, this far left trend that the party's kind of heading towards. He's offering a more moderate, more moderate lane for himself if he decides to run. That's so interesting because he's he's doing this within the bounds of the Democratic Party, right? He was an independent. For, I mean, the guy was the mayor of New York for for three terms, and he was never a Democrat during that time, which is kind of a remarkable achievement given you know New York City's politics. Um, but now he. He, he's trying to carry this message into a Democratic primary uh, for, the, for the first time in his life. And he talked about that, um, and he had some some sharp words for Howard Schultz uh, in talking about it. So he had um, considered running as an independent in 2016, and he told reporters on Tuesday that he decided against it because he worried that it would deliver Donald Trump uh, to the White House. So um, in talking about Howard Schultz, he said, you know, at least my obituary won't be. He's the one who gave us Donald Trump. <laughs> Yikes. Well, Chris, yeah. <laughs> Chris, t- tell us a little more about Schultz. And sure. Sh- Schultz is basically, he. I mean, he, he and Bloomberg have like switched, yeah. switched jerseys almost, right? Like the uh, Schultz is, is someone who has been a Democrat but has uh, decided for the purposes of this uh, like proto-campaign, I guess, mm-hmm. that, that uh, he, he doesn't fit in the Democratic Party anymore and he's thinking about running as an independent. Yeah. And he's got – before we get to, to in-depth in on him, he's got kind of a response that we're starting to hear to that Bloomberg criticism of uh, Bloomberg having done all the research and realized that uh, an independent is a non-starter. So the Schultz folks say, well – had Bloomberg run in 2016, maybe we wouldn't have had Donald Trump. And so that's kind mm-hmm. of uh, his, his way of, uh, of retorting that. Um, so Schultz is, is, if you talk to the folks around him and, and you talk to what he's trying to do ideally, right, it's, it's not so much that he's running against the Democrats in the field, the Republicans in the field. He's, he's running against the system. He's running against Washington. He's running against the two parties. Uh, but uh, And that's sort of the ideal uh, playbook for him. But if you look at what he's actually said on all these daytime TV shows, he is very much running against the Democrats. I mean, he's he's basically made them their foil, made him uh, them his foil. And he's talked about how all their plans are uh, in, similar to Bloomberg or are way out of step with the country. And he's also kind of come after Donald Trump. So, I mean, uh, his ideal playbook and, and, and his rollout are, have very much been at odds so far. What's the What's the path that that? Well, I I mean, I I guess he he's been explaining the path that that he thinks is laid out in front of him. I guess what I'd be curious to hear from you is is your sense and the sense of of, of other people watching this and even people working for Schultz of how realistic this is. Because one of the one of the things that struck me most about Trump's candidacy in 2016, uh, and, well, in 2015 and 2016, was how it like upset. Uh, kind of old school notions of what what the word moderate means. Um, that like it, it turns out that that this idea of someone who's just positioned right between the two parties on a lot of issues. There aren't very many people like that. A lot of people who are independents or moderates actually hold like very strong views mm-hmm. that, but just ones that are kind of end up on both sides of of the equation. You know, you, you they might want to. Uh, 
tax the hell out of wealthy people, but they also uh, might be anti-abortion, right? It's not that there are a lot of people just necessarily right in the middle between the two parties. Yeah, I think that's where you get to some of Schultz's views on social issues, on health care, even though he's been very critical of medical Medicare for all, single, single payer, some of these other proposals that Democrats want to do, even the public option stuff. You know, he brought health care to his employees at Starbucks, and he says that this is sort of an overarching uh, social goal of his. So he has some of that. The thing for him is like, you know, you run as an independent and talk about Trump, and he had this sort of uh, faux populism in his campaign. And Schultz, what he's saying is not very populist. Um, and so I don't know necessarily who he appeals to so far. Uh, what he points to is the large number of, of people who are independent, who have decided to drop both parties and who, who may be sort of dissatisfied with both sides uh, of the aisle. And so he sees that as ideal. The other thing for him in terms of the path is this week he was in Arizona, uh, which would speak to their plan to kind of blow up the system and not go to these early states and sort of pick off places where he thinks there are a large number of folks who could who, who he could appeal to. But then he also announced he's going to be going to the traditional early states, which doesn't necessarily make sense. That might be more of a play just for sort of the traditional reporters who are hanging around there to catch other uh, candidates. So there, there has certainly in this first week been a disconnect from what they're trying to do and what they would do ideally and, and sort of uh, some of the traps he's fallen into. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this is actually going to turn into a campaign at the end of all this? I think it's hard to say. I mean, they, they say that he's a, uh, much like Bloomberg, a very, very data-driven guy, that he's got all these uh, attorneys and pollsters on staff. He's polled, I think, seven times already. He had a focus group going on while he was on 60 Minutes. So this is something that he's tracking very carefully, and they say he wouldn't do it if he didn't see a path. Uh, he's laid out a timeline which goes out at least a couple months and maybe even into the summer and fall. So I think we'll just have to see. Um, the, the question for him is, uh, is, is he getting any kind of traction with the public? What we've heard in this first week is a lot of ire on uh, both sides of the aisle, particularly from Democrats. Meanwhile, I guess we should probably mention he has a book out, too. And what, what, what better way to sell books? Yeah, to- <laughs> I guess the question with the book is, was, was the book uh, to run for president or uh, is running for president, the idea of running for president to sell the book? That's I mean, an excellent question. Stephanie, what, what, about, what about Bloomberg? Based on everything you've seen and th- this, this t- very different path that the, the former New York mayor has, has carved out, do you think that Michael Bloomberg is going to run for, for president? I think he's undecided right now. He kind of played it cool this week in New Hampshire. Um, he was asked and he told reporters, you know, he's, he's thinking about it, he's considering it. And the reason he was in New Hampshire was to kind of just get a feel if he could relate to folks there. So I think that he's on the fence, but that trip uh, trip felt very candidate-like to me. Bloomberg strikes me as someone who has wanted to be president for a very long time, and uh, but but is trying to decide whether there's a path. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, maybe, I mean, I don't know. Maybe the same is true for Schultz. I guess he hasn't been in the public eye nearly as much, but certainly we know Bloomberg has flirted with this in the past. But I, um, I, I guess actually, Chris, like that, there's there's. Schultz has has thought about this for a long time. Yeah, he's been thinking about it for a while. I think uh, 2011 is what they say was kind of a turning point for him and the uh, the uh, debt ceiling debate, which happened then. And um, he was sitting, I guess he broke his arm or something, and he was sitting on his couch and he was just so frustrated that neither party could bring bring things together. And then uh, he was I just th- watching cable TV the whole time. I he guess. Was sitting on the ca- yeah, oh my gosh, that's, that's he no was way to live. Sick that's... of CNBC, I guess. And so he had uh, had uh, C-SPAN on. 
And uh, I think, you know, for a lot of these guys, what they could say and, and, and women is that, you know, Donald Trump is sort of the new turning point for them. Um, and, and probably for Bloomberg, too. I mean, even though they've thought about it before, never has the urgency been higher than uh, after Donald Trump's election and sort of sped things up and maybe made uh, a case, especially for these outsiders, these billionaires, uh, even if they've been mayor, um, you know, that's not necessarily been a path to the White House before. So Trump kind of blew that whole thing up. Stephanie, uh, the one one last question on this kind of from the ground. I mean, what what was the reaction and, and reception that that Bloomberg got? Did, were there any uh, voters or, or constituents who who were uh, watching him in New Hampshire who commented on on his wealth or, or anything along those lines? Uh, um, or or is was he kind of just another candidate passing through? Well, he got a really big reception at the New Hampshire Institute of Politics um, for that talk he gave over breakfast. And the executive director there told me that was the the largest crowd that a book event had ever generated um, there. So, I mean, that was one sign that people are really interested in him. And then talking to factory workers in Nashua, I mean, they all seemed, everyone was smiling, they were talking to him, but um, I didn't really hear much from voters on the ground about what they thought. Got it. Uh, yeah, it's just kind of kind of a, a, a curious moment for a lot of different reasons for for billionaires to be uh, to be running for office. Yeah, and as these as especially these two go out, you know, I mean, it's going to be interesting to continue to watch the reception because neither are the most scintillating public speakers, and so I think uh, you know I, it, it, the way that they might connect will be um, will be interesting. We saw Donald Trump criticize uh, both of them really, but particularly Howard Schultz for not having it, um, whatever that means. The, the the Q, Q rating, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, all right. Well, we'll we'll definitely be keeping an eye on. I mean, I I think there there's there's so much to 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 think about with uh with both of these these kind of unusual paths going forward. So, Chris, you're gonna be you're gonna be following it as it happens. Thank you so much for for talking to us. Of about course, it. thank you. And uh, Stephanie, thank you so much for giving us the download from New Hampshire. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. All right, we are going to move on to our next data point, which is $11 billion. And that is the amount of money the Congressional Budget Office says the partial government shutdown cost the U.S. economy. Although we should note the White House does not quite agree with that number. Uh, Either way, the government has reopened after congressional leaders and the president reached an agreement late last Friday afternoon. But... That deal only provides enough funding for three weeks and doesn't include the president's demand for border wall funding. So where does that leave us? We've got two Politico reporters here to walk us through it. In the studio, we've got Nancy Cook from the White House team. Hello, Nancy. Hey, thanks for having me, Scott. And on the line from the halls of the Capitol, we have Sarah Ferris from Politico's Congress team. Hi, Sarah. Hey. All right. So, Nancy, let's start with the the elephant in the room. The, the president is currently wallless. Uh, there, there was no down payment, which he, which he had demanded. There's, there's, how, how is that sitting with him? What does that mean going forward? Uh, now, now that the government has reopened, uh, but that we've got this kind of ticking clock in the background. I don't think it's sitting very well with him. Uh, basically, the President Trump ended the government shutdown, as many of you know, um, on Friday in a 
Rose Garden ceremony where he sort of continued to talk about the problem of illegal immigration. But basically, he reopened the government without getting anything for it. And so the news coverage was brutal. Um, You know, a bunch of conservative pundits trashed him over the weekend. Uh, You know, the headlines were terrible. It was basically that Trump lost to Pelosi. You know, Pelosi won entirely. He got nothing out of it. And so that's where things stand now. Now, Congress is allegedly working together to potentially negotiate some deal, and Sarah can talk more about that. In the meantime, though, I reported yesterday that the White House is moving towards declaring a national emergency. They feel like they're not going to get what they want um, out of the Democrats on the Hill. Even the Republicans on the Hill on the conference committee are not immigration hawks. And so they, uh, Mick Mulvaney, the acting chief of uh, staff, And the budget director and Jared Kushner and some other White House lawyers and top officials met with Trump yesterday and laid out the options, the various ways that he could declare a national emergency. And I was told that he didn't lean towards one option over another, but the White House is basically prepping that. And they're also been quietly meeting with outside conservative groups to build support for it because it seems like that's going to be the exit. And the, the national emergency, as you've told us before, would would uh, allow Trump to grab money from, from elsewhere as opposed to waiting for Congress to appropriate it, right, to to build the wall. Yeah, I think interesting. the interesting thing politically, though, is that a move like that is going to split. It, it's going to cause outcry among liberals and Democrats on the Hill, no question. But as I've been talking to people, it's also really going to split conservatives because there are a bunch of conservatives who feel like they don't want Trump to do this. They feel like it is one senior, um, former senior administration official said to me, this would basically be like Trump subverting the Constitution in service of his own ego. It's an executive power question. Yeah. And so there's a sense that he would be, you know, not really paying attention to the Constitution and setting a poor precedent. And so for me, that's the most interesting thing. And, you know, Republican lawmakers, and again, Sarah can talk more to this, I I think, uh, you know, have expressed some unease with this as well. So now... Sarah, t- take us to what, what's, what's the view on the Hill? You know, presumably we, we, the, the shutdown just ended, but there's this ticking clock. Everyone's probably really eager to, to work on this and prevent it from happening again, right? Well, I'm sure there are some people who want to work on this, <laughs> but the ones that I'm talking to are not really in that group because they're just so excited that they finally have a chance to talk about something else. And it's not just Democrats, but Republicans, too, are using this chance They're having press conferences about Syria. They're having press conferences about North Korea. They're holding hearings about drug pricing and CBO numbers. And it feels like the first week of the real of the Congress for real now. Um, But, you know, of course, we have this deadline living over our heads. And we did have the first conference committee yesterday. So we can talk a little bit about that. Um, But right now, it's it's just a very small group of people who are going to be in the room for this. And everybody else is happy to not have to deal with it. How does how does what Nancy just told us about the 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 possibility that Trump could take this national emergency route? How does that affect the congressional negotiations? Right. Because if if he did do that, um, it would. It, it would kind of remove the, this whole question about about the border wall from the the negotiations, right? Because it, it enters this whole separate realm. There would be a legal fight over over whether Trump could take the money that way. But it, all of a sudden, it's not a sticking point in what congressional Democrats and congressional Republicans are talking about, right? Right. In theory, this should put more pressure on Republicans to come to a deal with Democrats on some sort of border security barrier fencing something. But... The Republicans that I'm talking to up here, they really just don't 
see it as a threat yet. You know, part of that is be Congress, because Congress doesn't like to actually deal with something until it's two seconds away from happening. No. Um, so because <laughs> they have some more time, um, there are a lot of optimists uh, on the Republican side as well who think the Democrats will be willing to put, you know, some new miles of, of border barrier fencing that could actually suffice. Um, but the the prevailing wisdom up here is that they're not going to come up with something that resembles a deal. President Trump is going to hate whatever they come up with and that he probably will do this emergency declaration. But the fear and the anxiety of, of what would happen if he took this pretty unprecedented step here hasn't really hit the Republican caucus yet. Um, they've been saying for weeks, um, you know, if when I asked them about it, they kind of Uh, They're kind of like shifting around. They don't really want to talk about it. Some of them will flat out say, I hate this idea. You know, the next president is going to use it for climate change or uh, we're really afraid uh, that this could wind up in the courts. And, you know, God forbid they actually could say it's legal and that any president can do this from here on until forever. Um, So there, there are some really real anxieties about this, including with Republican leadership, because, of course, they'll have to they'll have the most pressure to line up behind Trump on this. And they will. There's, there's no chance in my mind that Republican leaders will break with Trump on this. They will have to support him if he decides to do this. Uh, but they are really nervous about the repercussions of it. So where, where does that put us in terms of what's likely to happen? This, are, are we heading right back to where we were? Is, it, is this a, you know, is, is this moment of government operation just a brief respite? Uh, or or do, do you think that it's going to shut down again? I think... I I mean, I I think we're definitely going to be coming close to the wire. Whether there is an actual shutdown is, I think, doubtful because of the the number of Republicans, both in the House and Senate, who are willing to say, no more shutdowns, we're not doing this again. Even if we dislike the outcome, we want want at least another continuing resolution. So there are Republicans in the Senate and House who have actually said, uh, even if they don't get the wall money, this is in direct contradiction with what Trump is saying, they're saying the president should at least sign some sort of tied me over funding bill that has everything on autopilot so that they don't see the headlines and the insanity that we saw for most of December and January. So there's even Republicans over here in the House who have come up with their own bills. So they have like these essentially escape hatch kind of bills that are ready to go at any moment that would include uh, that would include money to continue all these agencies operating, as well as, you know, throw in a debt ceiling deal, throw in a, a big thing for the, for the sequestration that's looming. This would do, deal with the budget caps that Congress has to address. I mean, there's, there's some real anxiety about what could happen in terms of not only a shutdown, but these other things down the road. And Republicans are like, we're just going to try and come up with our own solution. And it's, it's really interesting behind the scenes. Mm, well, it is interesting. Nancy, how does, the, how does that play in with, with what the White House is planning? Well, I think that what caused Trump to cave on um, the shutdown without getting any of his demands last time was that the Republican um, caucus, Republicans on the Hill were fracturing from him and they were splitting from him, particularly in the Senate. And so I don't think that that's going to change. That's why I think the White House is prepping this national emergency declaration so that it can give a way for it's a way for Trump to save face and say, well, you know, I couldn't get anything through Congress. Congress is screwed up. But look, I declared this national emergency. And that way he can at least, even if it's blocked by the courts or whatever, that way he can say to his base, look, I did this ahead of the 2020 campaign. I mean, this is really like a reelection thing, right? You want to be able to tell your base that you 
tried to get them the border wall and you did everything that you could and that you were stopped by liberals or establishment Republicans. And that's really what this is about. And I feel like some folks in the White House are also trying to save their jobs. You know, they don't want oh, to. That's you know, they don't necessarily, you know, Mick Mulvaney hasn't been the White House chief of staff uh, that long or the acting chief of staff. And he last week was starting to catch a lot of flack for the shutdown and sort of the way that it's been handled. That's been the dominant thing during his month running the White House so far. And I think that him and, and the people that he's brought in, but and, and other folks in the White House are very worried that they'll get blamed if Trump doesn't get what he wants. And so they're also going along with this, as one person uh, told me, to save their own asses. Huh. So there we go. All right. Po- <laughs> policy making in the White House. <laughs> All right, Nancy, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, Scott. And Sarah, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And as always, a big thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in this week. Our producer is Micaela Rodriguez. Dave Shaw is our executive producer. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. And if you'd like to read these credits, remember, you can drop us a line at nerdcast at politico.com and you can uh, show up on the air and maybe even try and stump Charlie Matessian as to who your congressional representative is. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you again next week.